Our scripture passage this morning comes from the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 21, and we are going to look at verses 1 through 8. And so I would invite you to follow along in your own copies, to stand if you're willing and able, as I read God's word. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. This is God's word. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. What do you think happens when you die? Uh, from the way almost everyone seems to be talking about it, it seems like everything is actually going to be really great. That we are all going to end up in the good place. And all sorts of sentimental scenes are kind of painted for us. Uh, countless eulogies tell us that everyone's just going to be doing their thing. So, you know, DMX, rapper, he is right now in heaven, rapping. And Kobe Bryant, he's up there balling. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she's, I guess, judging. Although I'm not sure what the morticians are doing in this view. Religions also have their answers. Hinduism answers usually involve something like reincarnation and all of us becoming one. Atheists and Buddhists kind of end up in the same place, in the same boat. 
where there is a blissful nothingness and desire ends not by being satisfied, but by being eliminated. So what is the end of the story? What is the end of history according to the Bible? What is God doing? What are his purposes? Well, all those questions are resolved in the last book of the last chapters in the book of Revelation. So I invite you to turn there to Revelation 21 if you haven't already and to have it open in front of you as we go through this passage. And Lord willing, in the next couple weeks, we'll be able to finish off this book as, as we have been going through it for a year and a half now almost. And for this past year and a half, it has been, uh, while we've been going through Revelation, it hasn't been a very pretty picture. Uh, we've read of threats from the Lord himself in the seven churches of Asia Minor. Like Jesus would say these very, very threatening words like, I will spit you out of my mouth. I will wage war against you with the sword of my mouth. Revelation has been filled with martyrs and blood and judgment and fire and beasts and false prophets. We've seen creation crumble, the enemies of God wiped out at Armageddon. We've seen him tread his enemies down under the winepress of the fury of God's wrath. But then we get to chapter 21 and 22, the beginning of the end that never ends. And what we find in, the last, in these last chapters is a sanctuary, is a sanctuary for the body and soul of every pilgrim who longs for home. The final destination in our restlessness and sojourn. It is a picture of heaven coming to earth and the earth becoming heaven. And almost every strand of scripture is drawn together in chapters 21 and 22. The Bible and redemptive history is all brought to its perfect and final conclusion. In these last chapters, almost every thread of the, Bibles, of the Bible comes together. Whether that's covenant or temple or the kingdom, that's there in these chapters. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Jesus and his priestly and prophetic ministry that is here in these chapters heaven and earth sin and salvation creation and consummation all in these chapters and it's characteristic of any great work of literature to bring in its ending a sense of harmony to the whole like the finale of a great symphony or something like the perfect omakase for the uninitiated, the omakase is this Japanese meal in which the chef brings out the most innovative dishes one at a time before you and you just enjoy it and then it comes carefully selected, carefully ordered by the chef and then at the very end, the best sushi is placed in front of you and it's so tasty and satisfying and you're done. And that is what we have here in the closing of the canon of Scripture. All the threads of Scripture are bound together in these last chapters. 
And this morning, I want us to set our minds on the things above and for us to dwell there, for us to think about the age to come and whet our appetites in anticipation for the glory that is yours, Christian. And just as an aside, I hope you will repudiate with me the lie that pondering the greatness of the age to come makes us a person less useful for this age. More than 100 years ago, activist Joe Hill, he kind of thought this way. He was traveling through America drawing cartoons and, and he wrote songs in defense of America's poor and he had no patience for pastors who kept preaching about heaven. And so he, in 1911, he penned the following. He wrote, long-haired preachers come out at night, try to tell you what's wrong and what's right. But when asked about something to eat, they will answer in voices so sweet. You will eat by and by in that glorious land above the sky. Work and pray, live on hay. You'll get pie in the sky when you die. But I think the opposite is true. The, the people who know where their hope is, people who know their destiny and it is rock solid and sure, those are the people who are free. Free to live a radical life for the Lord. A radical life of risk and love because market, it is not the people who have their hope here who are gathering up and, and, and storing up treasures for themselves here who are going to make a difference. It is the people who are free who have no need for money, nor worldly acclaim, because they got it all in Jesus. And so this is not pie in the sky. Thank you very much. Heaven is not simply a dream to retreat to when, you get, when things get messy and difficult. It is not just a fantasy. Heaven is not tacked on at the end of Revelation to give it some flourish. It is meant to immerse us in the realities of God that we might revive, revive in our obedience and be fortified for the long haul to do the hard things of suffering as ambassadors of Christ during our pilgrimage here on earth. So church, let me introduce this introduction in Revelation of chapter 21. And I want you to notice four things about heaven. Four things about heaven. First, you notice the creation restored in verse 1. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth has passed away. Here we have an echo of Eden. When we read these verses, what do we think of? Automatically, any of you who know the Bibles or even know it just a little bit, it reminds us to Genesis 1.1. And what does it say there? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In a way, Revelation is almost like those Lord of the Rings books. You know how they begin in the Shire and then there's all this adventure and stuff along the way. And then they, what happens at the end? They always end up back in the Shire. Or it's like T.S. Uh, poet T.S. Eliot's East Coker, where he begins his poem, In my beginning is my end. And at the conclusion of his rather lengthy poem, he brackets it with these words, 
In my end is my beginning. You get a sense that you've traversed a long distance, but you get a sense of coming back home. And that is what is happening in this first verse. God is going to restore creation and we are going to go home. God is bringing us home. So there's a sense in which there is something very familiar about heaven and yet something radically new. It's a feeling of arriving home to a place that you've never been. It's, it's a feeling of deja vu or, or even nostalgia for a place we've never lived. It's like watching the Friends reunion and all the wistful memories and emotions come back. Or when you step onto that university campus and all the smells, sights, and of, of campus and all the memories, just that nostalgia is there. It produces this sense of yearning there. And that is what we get a sense of here. It will be sat- and we'll all be satisfied in this new heaven and this new earth. And this new heaven and new earth, there are kind of two different views on, on what that really means. Uh, some call it a renewal, meaning God is just going to polish up the earth a little bit and make it better, fix it up. Some see a recreation, meaning God is just going to trash it and throw it all away, and he's going to restart brand new with something from scratch. Now, I believe the Bible as a whole testifies it's somewhere in between. Uh, 2 Peter 3.10 does say that the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and works that are done on it will be exposed. And at first glance, when we look at that passage, well, it sounds like it's going to be like this whole brand new thing. But if you read that passage in context, what's, in, what's the context? It is Noah. And that he says that Noah, it, when the flood came, it destroyed the earth. And it says that in the same manner of Noah is this coming new heaven and new earth. So I think that it's not saying... I think what, what happened in the days of Noah was God was wiping the earth, wiping the slate clean, but he was not... He was not annihilating the world in the days of Noah. And so I think that's what's going to be happening in the new heavens and new earth. I think creation will be restored into something utterly new, not just a ratcheting it up, but it's a massive, massive renovation and transformation, completely different and yet related. Kind of like a, butterfly, a, a caterpillar to a butterfly or, or a seed to a tree. Exactly what the relationship is between the new heaven and the new earth and the old heaven and the, new, and the old earth, I can scarcely articulate, but it will be spectacular. We are not just going to be floating around and grabbing clouds and harps all day. The earth is going to be restored, renewed, renovated. It will be our heaven, a physical place for our physical stuff, for our physical bodies. And when we reach there, we will not be dislocated, but we will finally be in the place we belong. Beloved, God has put eternity into our hearts. All of us have, while we are here, have this sense of frustration, alienation in this world. We will feel frustration and futility, a feeling of never quite arriving never feeling settled with ourselves. And these are not figments of our imagination. 
this angst will never be papered over by traveling all the time, by trying new foods or making ourselves more at home in this world. You belong here is, is the lie that is told to us by everyone from Disney to Vegas. And we're always kind of unsettled, looking for something new. I mean, if we, if we lived in York, we want New York. And if we lived in England, we want New England. You know, Disney songs remind us of our yearning for a whole new world, a place shining, shimmering, and splendid. Unbelievable sights, indescribable feelings, soaring, tumbling, freewheeling through an endless diamond sky. And beloved, God promises us home in the new heaven and the new earth. No longer dislocated, but we will be in the place where we are welcomed, where we belong. And this is the purpose of God for to his people, a return to the ancestral home. This place where we began, the place of fellowship and light and life. Second, you notice that heaven is not only the creation restored, but it is the curse reversed. The curse reversed. Notice that, it, that what's not here in the new heaven and new earth. It says in verse 1, the sea is no more. And some of you might be thinking, well, you know, I kind of like the sea. I like fishing. I like being on a boat. Now, is John saying that there will be no large body of water in the new creation? Probably not, because there's all sorts of metaphors that are happening here in chapters 21 and 22. But in the Bible, the sea is a place of chaos and conflict. And, and we can be totally honest, like we, we think we like the sea, but usually it's because we're on the beach. I mean, we're probably perfectly happy with a lake. But the Old Testament describes the sea as a place of tossing and growling. It is the place where Leviathan lives. In the New Testament, it is, the, it is, what, causes, it is what causes Paul to be shipwrecked. The Sea of Galilee is where boats get, get caught up in these squalls and are almost capsized. And that is why Isaiah says in Isaiah 57, 20, the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet and its waters toss up mire and dirt. In Revelation, sea is where the Antichrist comes from. In other words, the sea is everything that chafes and frets under the dominion of God. But there is nothing like that in the new heaven and new earth. It is the curse reversed, evil and sinfulness and wickedness. All of that is going to be gone, removed. In, the he in heaven, there will cease to exist anything with the slightest residue of sin. Oh, church, isn't that the greatest frustration that we face right now? To feel as Paul felt when he said, oh, wretched man that I am, that I want to do what I, that I do what I don't want to do, and what I don't want to do, I do. The war against our flesh is the most frustrating thing about our life here on earth. At least it is for the children of God. Oh, I want to be holy. And I fall short. I want to love. And then I say hurtful things. I want to be pure, and then impurity bombards my mind. I want to worship, and I feel cold. And I want to be done with it. 
Don't you? But God promises that he will make all things new. No more sin. No more desire to sin. No more struggling with sin. No more even half-hearted, humdrum fight with sin. Oh, what will it be like? Think of all the joy and the peace and the delight and enjoyment to love God as you were made to love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. We can scarcely imagine what it is like to live in such a world. But there's more. Verse 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither no mourning, nor crying, nor pain. For the former things have passed away. There will be everlasting joy and bliss for the debilitating effects of sin and suffering have all been taken away. God will wipe away every tear of pain. death shall be no more and there will be no more injustice there will be no more racism there will be no more stillbirths no more miscarriages no more suicides no more depression no more dysphoria no more cancer no more tears over wayward children. No more calls coming in the middle of the night when your friend confesses to you that they've committed adultery. No more church discipline. No more finding out that your parents are getting a divorce. No more crying yourself to sleep. The new world is beyond our comprehension and description. It is this image of joy and splendor and Sabbath and rest in our lives. This is heaven. The curse reversed. That is the atmosphere that you and I will be in. Third, heaven will mean the church redeemed. Look at verse 2. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What we see is that new heaven and new earth is a place coming out of heaven. In other words, the culmination of history is not a human-made tower of Babel using our own skills trying to reach up to God, but rather the climax and fulfillment of history is what God has made bringing it down and giving it to us. And what we have is a social vision, a place, a city. But notice that the New Jerusalem is also a people. It's not only a place, but a people. Uh, she is prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And, and the word adorned there is the Greek word cosmeo, where we get cosmetic. The picture here then is the church prepared, beautified, sanctified, made spotless and without blemish for her husband, Jesus Christ. And this isn't some throwaway picture that we have here, but a display of the love of Christ for his church. You know, over the years, I've had the privilege of officiating a lot of weddings. And uh, 
one of the privileges is actually being able to stand up in the front. And when the door swings open, and everyone stands up, and the bride comes in, and beauty, beautiful and beautified, and all eyes turn on her, and, I, and this groom, this, he's been standing there, this antsy, and he turns around, and he finally sees her. And while everyone has their eyes on the bride, I, I sneak a glance at the groom, and at that moment, I see all his love and affection and joy as he gazes upon his bride. It is as if there is no one else in the room. And sometimes these emotionless groom, grooms even end up crying. And this is how Jesus will look upon his bride, the church, because from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. This is what it will be like in heaven, church. You will be there, and you will be cosmetic. You will be adorned, spotless, loved, and desired by our Lord. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time here talking about this because there's a chance next week to talk more about the new Jerusalem, the bride. But let me just say that the church will be in heaven. In other words, it won't be just you by yourself for eternity. You will not be alone. And so that begs the question, uh, what do you think about the church right now? I know there are some of you with issues with the church. Some of you have been hurt by the church. Some of you have gone to lifeless, formal churches. And some of you have seen the church and all its faults and all its warts. And frankly speaking, for some of you, the church is very low on your totem, of, totem pole of spirituality. But let me tell you that God did not send his only son for you. He did not come to make persons but a people, a body, a church. And eternity will not be lived in isolation. But with the people of God. And yet somehow we've gone in it into our minds that, hey, we can live without the church. That somehow he can love God without meeting with God's people. You know, like with all the vaccines now, we're like, yes, I can't wait. I can't wait to travel. But is there any desire to say, yes, I can't wait. I can't wait. Church to be with the people as they display all the giftings that God has given them. Missed Sundays cannot be made up by listening to a podcast. Online church is not church. And if you don't like church, heaven won't be heaven for you. This is why it's so important, brothers and sisters, to take your membership seriously, to take your church covenant seriously. To gather together, to ensure that there is no strife between us, that we remain united. Fourth and finally, in heaven we see Christ residing. Christ residing. Look at verse 3. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Here is God's supreme gift of heaven, himself. Yes, the creation will be restored. Yes, the curse will be reversed. Yes, the church will be redeemed. But the center is not the place, but the person. The Lord Jesus Christ, he is what makes heaven heaven. Yes, we're going to have juice in heaven. But Jesus will be all in all. He is what makes heaven beautiful. He is the beautiful thing in that place. And in covenant language that has been echoing down since the time of Abraham, he says, you will be my people and I will be your God. Now, church, it is true that God is with us now. His spirit dwells in us. Jesus promised to be with us to the end of the age. But the Bible speaks of us seeing in a mirror darkly. Our bodies as a temple of God are limited because of our sin. But there's a coming day when the Lord will be our God fully, unhindered, and we will be his people. We will see him face to face, and that is heaven. That is why John Piper wrote that book. God is the gospel. Meaning God is not a ticket to something else. You don't pray a prayer that Christ is your Savior and then throw it away like a, like a stub and go to the main feature where your life is enhanced by all you want it to be. Friend, if you believe that, you're not a Christian. A Christian is somebody who believes they have sinned against God, that God acted in Christ for their salvation and has re repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus. And God is the point. He is not merely the grounds of our salvation, but what? The goal of our salvation. Our eternal future is by God's grace to be reintroduced into the presence of God and there to enjoy that love without interruption. His love fully manifested. Our hearts perfectly satisfied. There is no greater gift. There is no greater love to show than to be safely home in the presence of our Lord where there are pleasures forevermore. And do you long for that? You know, perhaps you lost a friend or a family member or a spouse or a child and, and you can't wait for heaven to be, to be with them again. And I think that's okay. That's a good desire. I think we'll recognize one another in heaven. But is there any longing for God? You know, when I do premarital counseling with with a lot of couples, I typically will ask them, what are you looking forward to when you get married? You know, and some people will have godly answers like, oh, so that we can glorify God together. You know, they're in the presence of the pastor. Uh, some men are brave enough, and they'll kind of like squeamishly, but they'll say, sex. But mostly, they say, here's what I look forward to. We don't have to go to separate homes at night. When I wake up in the morning, she's there. He's there. We get to be together. No more distance. And in the new heaven and new earth, we will be home and at home with God. Forever and ever, we will live with pure hearts and glorious bodies on new earth and the presence of the beauty and worth and greatness of our Lord. Well, 
we could keep going, but really my time really is up. There's so many more verses that we can get through, through verses 5 through 8. I'm thankful that Pastor Daniel referred to them. Let me just briefly just say this in closing. We've seen what won't be there in heaven, sin and mourning and death. We've seen what will be there. It's going to be a new creation. It's going to be the church. It's going to be Christ himself. And the question I want to ask all of you is, will you be there? Will you be there? I must ask you this because verse 6 and 7 says, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. In other words, the one who conquers to those who have thirsted after God through all the discontent in this world, through all the disappointments that we experience, we will be satisfied in God himself because he will be the fountain of life. God is the never-ending omega. He is the end, and he will be the source of life forever. But these final verses remind us of the truth that God is a never-ending omega for everyone. Because there is another group of people mentioned in verse 8. These are the people who do not thirst for God. God is their omega too, but not in the same way. God is their end in the sense that when life is over, they will not end up at the fountain of water. But only a big, spreading, yellow lake of fire. So if you're not a Christian this morning, and the invitation is before you now, heaven can be yours everlasting joy before the happiest person in the world can be yours. But the question is, do you thirst? That is only what is required of you. Do you thirst? Not simply for eternal life. Nobody wants to go to hell. Everybody thirsts in that sense. But do you have a soul thirst for God? I think if you take time to just think about it. In, quiet, in the quietness of the day and just think about all the wells of this world that you have drunk from and how dissatisfying it truly is because the Bible talks about that. And there are broken cisterns. Try to follow job, career, relationships, money, whatever it is. Broken cisterns that do not satisfy. So I invite you to come. Come now to the water of life which God gives to the thirsty, he says. I will give water without price. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful that your word is clear. Your word, you have given us your word by which we may have a glimpse of heaven. We give you praise. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to set our minds on the things that are above, that we may continue to sojourn here on earth faithfully, knowing that in one sense we are home and that home is yet to come. And we pray this morning for those
who do not yet know you. Who are trying to make this world their home. That they would see, open their eyes, Lord, to see the beauty of Jesus Christ. Cause them to thirst for yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.